So some of you might be aware, the month of October I was on sabbatical, and one of the things I did during sabbatical is I completed about half of um, mindfulness teacher training. It's the mindfulness school, if you can use that word, that's associated with John Kabat-Zinn, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And actually, that's a bit of a misnomer because sometimes being mindful actually makes us a little bit more stressed as we recognize how we really are in our lives. Now, with all schools of thought, there's a particular kind of practice, specifically if you're going to be a teacher in mindfulness-based stress reduction, and it particularly involves attention to words, most specifically, ing words, words that end in ing. Now, I'm not talking about something that really bothers all my friends who are sticklers for grammar. I'm not talking about, let's say, let me give you an example here. Um, you know, I went shopping on Black Friday. Actually, I didn't go shopping on Black Friday at all. I was hiking in Valley Forge. I didn't want to go anywhere near a mall. But let's just say I did go shopping on Black Friday, and I was looking for the perfect gift for you. But I couldn't find the present for you that I really wanted, so I present you later on December during the gift-giving holiday season a bonus card to breadsoftheworld.com and say, I'm gifting you with this. I'm gifting you with that. That's what's called verbing a noun. I have a friend who teaches English on the university level, and she teaches a lot of um, engineers. And she's got her Ph.D. in English literature. And let's just say she's come to recognize that English is used a little bit differently in some of the sciences. And she became aware of this phrase that her students were using over and over and over again. They were efforting a solution. How many have ever used that in a sentence? All right, thank you. We got one honest person here. I know there's other folks, especially in the technical realms, you're just not coming clean right now. Efforting a solution, that's called verbing a noun. You never heard anyone efforting a solution, which is just trying to do a good day's work, basically. That's what it actually translates into. Those kinds of words, verbing a noun, that's not what I'm talking about. The I-N-G words that mindfulness uses, that we use as we guide other people and ourselves into a meditative space, it's more like this. And see if you can understand or even experience the difference. I'm going to say right now, be aware of your body. Be aware. Versus this. Inviting awareness of our bodies. Becoming aware of our bodies. You understand the difference? Be aware. One, it's a command. And you have no idea whether I'm doing it. I'm telling you to do it. Be aware also you could answer. Okay. Answer that. I'm aware already. What else you got for me? As opposed to becoming aware. We can't say we have finished that task. Becoming aware, inviting awareness, opening ourselves up. That is a process that literally could go on and on and on. The key point of these ING words is that we open ourselves to an unfolding process. Something that we cannot say is finished and done. I love these ING words because they are associated with that opening, with the verb of simply paying attention to what is here in our lives right now. 
I love them because the basis of all authentic spirituality for me is always getting back in touch with the primary verbs of our lives. Like we just sang, you got to move. Getting back in touch with who we are means that we know that all of life is, at its deepest level, flow and movement and getting in touch with the movement that is ours right here and right now. And I love that we just celebrated the one verb holiday. We just celebrated the verb holiday. And yes, before those of you who are grammarians want to go all schoolhouse rock on me and tell me that it's really not a verb, it's a gerund. If you didn't know that, well, now you know it's a gerund, not a verb. It's an action. Thanksgiving. I love that Thanksgiving is a verb first. Yes, it is a noun as well. And yes, it is about events that some say happened and some say didn't and probably didn't happen exactly the way the traditional story goes at all. Most holidays are presented to us as nouns. As a thing that occurred at some point in the past, at some other time, and we celebrate it. And I think that's the seed of disappointment for a lot of people, especially around these December holidays, because a noun which becomes a thing becomes an image, and we want to live up to that image, and if we really don't live up to that image, and we didn't get exactly what we want, or the gift that we gave wasn't received as we wish it would have been, well, then that leads to a kind of December disappointment that exists for so many people moving into this month. But truly, to get back in touch with holidays that are holy days, that's what the word actually means. It means always moving beyond the noun of the holidays back into the verb. It's like what we did with the chalice this morning. We talked about that, yes, this is a symbol of our living spiritual heritage, but another ing word there, the emphasis is on the living. Not just about what is past, but recognizing and cultivating and putting ourselves in touch with what is right here and right now in our lives. This is one of the biggest differences in the spiritual and religious world right now, that fundamentalism is based upon the idea of nouns being one thing. This is why fundamentalism sometimes reacts so violently, emotionally, or sometimes physically to when certain stories are questioned. Because fundamentalism says that only one interpretation is the right interpretation and either the story of the holiday happened exactly as we say it happened or the entire meaning goes away. At our best, in our progressive spiritual tradition, we believe that it is always so important to peel back the label of the thing and find again the verb underneath. Asking ourselves, what is called upon within me, around me, with the people that I am engaged with, to commit my hand and my heart to again? I love that Frederick Buechner, who was really trained as a minister first, and then became an actually more famous novelist, he says, if you scratch the surface of any doctrine, scratch the surface of any doctrine, eventually at some point, no matter how hard the tradition tries to hide it, you will find at some point in the past a face that smiled or eyes that cried. There is always at the basis of all tradition living, healthy verbs asking us to rediscover them. 
So much of this way of celebrating holidays and finding the holy days in them again is connected to the basic practice of mindfulness that I have gone and am going deeper with. And we simply learn and invite ourselves over and over and over again. Pay attention. Learning to treat ourselves in this very moment with deeper kindness deeper compassion. Learn perhaps just a little bit to turn down the flame that we have, some of us, set under our feet. And getting back in touch with what is simply here, we find that when that connection is apparent to us, we find that kindness is abundant as well too. And that no matter how small our experience may seem, No matter if it may seem like an insignificant thing. When we truly do get in touch with our lives, something very natural arises. Thanksgiving. Even if it is only for the breath. And I use only in quotes because the breath is kind of the start and the end to everything spiritual. It may be something very big to you for which you are thankful today, something very big for which you are giving thanks and grateful. But even if it isn't anything big or anything that you might think is significant, when we do mindfully get back in touch, we recognize that there is so much to be grateful for. It is part of why we do all throughout this month our 30 days of gratitude. It is training not for the month of November. It is training for our whole lives. That we can invest ourselves with where we are and know that it has tremendous meaning. That's why Thanksgiving is for me not at all an event or a holiday. It is finally a way of living. Now, one of the books that those of us who have done the 30 Days of Gratitude blog have been working with, and indeed it has been one of our small groups that I think we've done here three or four times at Wellsprings. It's called a book. Again, notice these ING words, wanting what you have. Not, again, want what you have. Wanting what you have. Wanting what we have. I think perhaps at no other time of the year is learning. (laughs) It's not easy sometimes. Learning to want what we have as important as it is right now. The season of stress for a lot of folks. The season of a lot of acquisitiveness. The season in which we are bombarded so often with buy, buy, buy. And get, get, get. And sometimes, gimme, gimme, gimme. I think that for me, probably the most important words associated with Black Friday, well, we got to come up on Monday, Cyber Monday. And by, by the way, I have nothing against shopping. It's just investing too much in the act of shopping. That's the problem. I think of what for me is the most psychologically acute of all the commandments, of the Ten Commandments. And by the way, I don't see them as commandments. I see them as profound insights, many of them. The most profound being this one. Thou shall not covet. That would really change our economy, wouldn't it, if we would not covet things. I mean, old school was thou shall not covet thy neighbor's property or thy neighbor's 
ass means something different these days. They meant donkey back then. Thy neighbor's spouse, thy neighbor's all kinds of things. But that's so important to recognize that if we can scratch the surface there and don't see it as a thou shalt not because thou art bad, but instead a very psychologically attuned insight, which is that every moment that we are not wanting what we have, every moment that we are wanting what someone else has, is a moment in which we cannot live our own lives. It is a moment in which we are refusing to recognize whatever is here. And it doesn't have to be a brutal kind of envy. It can be, you know, just browsing a catalog and browsing another catalog and browsing another catalog and finding that longing start to come up. I remember a number of years ago being in someone's house who had catalogs all over the place. And as the time that I was with them over a few days emerged, a storyline came up. All these catalogs were of things that this person could not afford and yet wanted so desperately. And so there was all this almost judgment in all these catalogs that were placed all over this person's house, reminding them of the things that they weren't. And it made me very, very sad. So catalogs aren't my thing. Facebook is more my thing. Browsing that, taking a look at who has said what or who has the access to information that I wish I would have and browsing through Facebook and maybe sometimes just hearing those creeping thoughts in my head, imagining how good their lives are. I wish I were like that. I wish I had said X or I wish I had Y. Or I know that X just went to Z and I really want to be in Z too. Fill in the blanks yourself. That's what all those are for. Anytime when we are browsing through anything and looking with longing at something that isn't us. And simultaneously judging ourselves. We are actually engaging in what I believe is a deadly sin. Not deadly in a moralistic way but deadly to the soul and to our connections with each other, which is greed. Wanting and wanting and envious and envious, hoping for more and more and more. And yet that more and more and more, if that is what we want, never seems quite enough. I believe that greed is the very opposite of gratitude because if we scratch the surface of greedy behavior or behavior that wants more and more and more and more, the question we find there isn't really, do I have enough? The question we find there is something much more sad, which I saw in that friend of mine with the catalogs all around their house. The question is really, am I enough? And that many of us may not believe that. When I talked a couple weeks ago in this, again, notice the ING, occupying 
your life message series. And I talked about the Occupy movement and some of its significance about what it tells us about our society. I talked about a TED talk that I had seen in which an economist had studied societies that had extremes of wealth and that one of the features of those societies is that trust levels are very low. And when trust levels are very low, you know what correlates with that? Loneliness. So what Mick talked about The opportunity on a daily basis to be grateful and to be charged and charging full through reflection upon those relationships, many of us, that really sustain us. Those are not things that can be bought and sold. And I especially know this as a person in recovery myself, that trying to fill those God-shaped holes with stuff or with constant pleasure or with shopping or with a drug or a drink or a substance or a foodstuff, whatever it is, that is a losing battle. We can never win it because that bottomless want, that enviousness of someone else has it better than me. It cannot do the heavy lifting for our hearts and our happiness that we would wish it to do. The opposite of greed is certainly gratitude. And why is that? Well, a bunch of you already gave me the answer to this. I'm going to quote something that I think 10 different people sent me this last week. It was from the opinionator in the New York Times, and it was fittingly in Thanksgiving week, about why gratitude is so very good for us. And it started with the question, why does gratitude do so much good in our relationships, in our bodies, literally physiologically and emotionally? Gratitude is literally good for us. Well, they quoted a guy named Dr. Michael McCullough who said gratitude is part of a psychological system that causes people to raise their estimates of how much value they hold in the eyes of another person. Gratitude is what happens when someone does something that causes you to realize that you matter more than you thought you did. That deepest kind of affirmation, that kind of affirmation that can be cultivated and shared, but I believe cannot be bought and sold. That affirmation that comes with gratitude, that comes with the simple thank you, that comes with recognizing that we matter and we are here. It is also the recognition of, for me, what is my favorite sermon ever preached on gratitude, which is a form of grace. Paul Tillich, the esteemed theologian, sometimes one of the most difficult people I have ever, ever read. I mean, translated from the German and parathetical sentences that go on and on and on, sometimes over a page and a half. And his most simple, profound sermon was simply this, the reality of grace, which he called you are accepted. Simply accept the fact, and I would say accepting the fact, because for me, it's everyday work. Accepting the fact that we are acceptable. That is grace. That is what happens when we live in the reality of thanksgiving and gratitude. And it is not something that I think we can really believe with our heads. If that's the truth, I would have started believing it years ago, but I never did until I started believing it with my heart. Now, what does it look like? I want to tell you right now one of my favorite stories about what happens when Thanksgiving can transform us. And it comes from this guy. You know him? Dwayne? Little Miss Sunshine? Can you see that a little bit? It's kind of dark up there. The sign that he is holding, by the way, says this. It says, Welcome to Hell. 
I don't know how many of you saw Little Miss Sunshine, but it's one of my favorite movies from, I think it was 2006. And actually, I preached on it in our Spirit Flick series a number of years ago. Now, Dwayne is in this absolutely dysfunctional family. He has taken a months-long, indeed, longer-than-a-year vow of silence. He does not talk. And these, by the way, welcome to hell, are his welcoming words to his uncle, who has just tried to commit suicide because his partner has left him. And yes, for those of you who have not seen Little Miss Sunshine, it's a comedy, actually. And not a dark comedy. It actually is a really beautiful comedy and very uplifting. But it is about dysfunctional people who really are having the utmost difficulty wanting what they have. And Dwayne has taken a vow of silence until the time in which he can become a pilot. Until the time at which he can join the Air Force and start flying planes. He cannot stand his family. He will not talk to them. He wears t-shirts that says Jesus was wrong. He loves Friedrich Nietzsche. He takes pleasure in other people's misfortune. And yes, this is a comedy, I swear. Well, if you know the story, I'm not going to get into the whole thing. Little Miss Sunshine is a pageant that the one shining star in this completely dysfunctional family, Little Olive, if you'll show Olive right now, she's going to participate in the Little Miss Sunshine pageant, and that in and of itself is a whole other wonderful story, but we'll let that go for now. Dwayne begrudgingly says he will join them in this trip from hell, from Albuquerque to Los Angeles, so Olive can participate. Now, he's in the back of their broken-down VW microbus, barely chugging along through the southwest. And at one point, he is working through a series of flashcards, if you've seen the movie, and remember this scene. And, of course, he's not saying anything. He's just sort of grunting and acknowledging the flashcards. And at one point, his uncle, still surviving his own suicide attempt and is being bereft, shows up one of these flashcards. And Dwayne doesn't quite get it. And it clicks in for the uncle. Uh Uh-oh. And Dwayne madly starts scribbling down what's wrong. Dwayne, you're colorblind. And you can't fly a plane if you're colorblind. And Dwayne, who has not spoken in months, starts shaking with rage, almost like he's going to pull one of the seats out, shaking with rage, shaking with rage, and like starts literally foaming at the mouth and starts spitting. And they pull over the side of the road, and he leaps off into the desert, and he screams at the absolute top of his lungs, his first word in months. Fuck! And he proceeds to enter one of those pits of despair, calling out all of his family members. You losers! Divorce! Suicide! Failure! Just leave me here. Leave me on the side of the road. I'm not going anywhere. And he sits his ass down, completely contained in his anger and his hatred. And they can't budge him. 
And then Olive, who's really the one who has something writing on what's going on, comes over to him. Okay. I'll go. I'm sorry I said all those things. In that moment of not getting the thing that Dwayne wants, he still finds one small way of wanting what he has. If we can find one small thing of wanting what we have, it can save us. I mean, really save us. I think of this time of the year as the peanuts and Charlie Brown time of the year. It starts with Halloween and it goes to Thanksgiving and then it goes to Christmas. I think of Charles Schulz. And perhaps many of you know, maybe some of you don't, that Charles Schulz, who gave so much happiness to so many for decades, woke up every day in despair. He lived with anxiety and depression. He often did not like himself. When I imagine Charles Scholz deciding, deciding every day to give it another try, even with those difficult feelings he was experiencing, I imagine that he was finding his own way to answer what Einstein called one of the most important questions we can ever ask ourselves. Is the universe a friendly place? Is the universe a friendly place for us? I cannot make a big decision about that. <laughs> Some days the evidence, yeah, it's a friendly place. Sometimes I wonder how human beings can make it in this universe at all. The only way that I, which is perhaps why I imagine Charles Schulz could do it, is to be making that decision on a daily basis. Today, I am creating and helping to create a universe that is a friendly place. This is a way of daily decision making. That absolutely does remind us that the universe, for all of its challenges, is not finished. And creation is not done with us yet. And so we should not be done with it. Gratitude is, as many have said, that gratitude underlies so many other virtues because with it, we decide day after day after day to be entering back into our lives. That where we can find that grace and gratitude and love are unfinished, we can just take a breath, wipe off our tears, let go of our anger, just as Dwayne did, and find, even if it's a small way, that we are saying yes to life. And we are wanting what we have. And in the most profound way, loving again who we are. Amen. And may you live in blessing.